0: Support for this episode of Youth Culture Matters comes from Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. This January, Gordon-Conwell will be serving youth workers with a variety of learning opportunities. To learn more, go to gcts.edu.
1: Drug and alcohol abuse is nothing new to youth culture. Sadly, it's been a part of the teenage experience for a long time. While anti-drug efforts have yielded a decline in the use of some drugs, the usage numbers on way too many drugs are on the rise, and not a day goes by when we don't read another sobering statistic or sad story related to the abuse of opioids or heroin. Today, kids are engaging with drugs and alcohol for a host of reasons. What is it like to work with a young person who is addicted? How can parents handle and navigate the horror of watching a son or daughter spiral down into the grip of drug and alcohol addiction? And what should we do as youth workers when these things visit our families? Stick with us as we hear a compelling first-person story of heartbreak and hope from our good friend Alan Jackson on this episode of Youth Culture Matters.
0: From the Center for Parent Youth Understanding, this is Youth Culture Matters. If you're a parent, youth worker, educator, counselor, grandparent, or anyone else who cares about kids, we're glad you've joined us for this practical, informative, and hope-filled podcast. This is a place where together, we talk and think Christianly about the rapidly changing world of today's children, teens, and young adults.
1: Pretty excited today to have Jason Soschnick back with us. Jason's been on a, what do we call it, Jason, a, a grief leave? Yeah,
2: grief hiatus.
1: Yeah, grief hiatus. You want to tell us what, what you're so broken up about? Well, it's the U.S. men's soccer team not making the World
2: Cup. It changes who I have to chair on. I mean, World Cup is one of the best events, and now I have no team to cheer on. So uh, it left me in a state of, of grief and frustration.
1: No team to cheer on. I like that. Uh, welcome to the world of the rest of us here, in terms of what we think about <laughs> soccer.
2: But the World Cup. I mean, it's it's the World Cup, and billions of people participate in the cheering. ...of their teams. And we, as a country of 300 million, do not have a team to cheer on. That's It's actually quite sad. Maybe it'll be and, a wake-up uh, call that we finally stop putting so many resources into this so-called sport. All right,
1: we're going to have to stop yeah. the conversation or, here because we're going to lose or, listeners if we let Chris or, hijack this well, thing. Or,
2: or, or what will happen is we, it proves that we actually need to invest I, money into this and have a much fear. better plan. Yeah, well, I, here's here's the deal. We, I, I will just say very quickly... That that was why we took a little hiatus, not really. But it's good to I have was you back, free.
1: Yeah, it's good to be yeah. back. Yeah, boy, a lot of press. It's been interesting to read in the, you know yeah. in the follow up since then about what people think. I mean, it's some pretty nasty stuff. Soccer fans oh, are writing. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Hey, listen. I just want to mention quickly that we are really, really grateful to Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary for sponsoring this podcast. And Duffy Robinson and I have some things coming up up there. Are you aware of what these things are, Jason? Have I? Yeah, I
2: think one of them. Yeah, you have something coming up uh, around sexual integrity, yeah, which I think yeah. sounds really, really great. Maybe you can talk a little bit yeah, about Yeah, we
1: just want people to be aware that in January we've got three things happening up there over the course of two weeks. Duffy and I will be teaching a master's level class on Theology and Principles of Dynamic Youth Ministry. it's a modular people can get in on that and have credit transfer to their institution. That's going to be a fun time. We're going to end that class on a Saturday, a full day of youth worker training. That's actually going to be opened up to the community up there in New England or anybody else who would want to come for parents and youth workers on the topic of nurturing the soul of today's youth. We've pulled in some good practitioners from New England to help us with that. And then, as you mentioned, the week after... From January 15 to 18, we will be leading a youth ministry symposium on facilitating traditional biblical sexuality in a changing youth culture. It's going to be limited to 25 people and very intense and practical as we work together to discover how to promote traditional biblical sexuality. So thanks to Gordon Conwell for that. today. great. Boy, this is going to be a tough topic today, but really timely. We're going to talk about drug abuse, substance abuse, addictions, and specifically in light of what's happening with the opioid problem in this country. It seems like every single day you open the newspaper. I know here in Pennsylvania when we open the newspaper, we see story after story after story. If it's not telling us the statistics on heroin addiction and opiate addiction, it's telling us the stories of individual people, yeah. and they're absolutely heartbreaking. What about up there in school? Well, it's happening happening just as much. And, and actually, it, it,
2: I'm hearing stories within youth ministries of uh, families being impacted and, and youth ministries losing students or having students that have to go into uh, care. Uh, to take care of some addiction as it relates to this. I, you know, I don't want to exaggerate numbers. It's not like every youth ministry experiences this, but I'm experiencing more and more youth ministries that do have stories that include this. And it's, it's, uh, it's something that needs to be discussed, and I'm glad we're doing so today.
1: Yeah. Just to frame our conversation before we get ready to talk to our friend Alan Jackson, who's going to tell a very personal story of how this issue has hit home for him, literally hit home, in his family, there were so many statistics we could communicate, but very quickly, I'm just going to give you something I found about five critical facts about the opioid addiction and abuse epidemic. And to rifle through these, number one, in 15 years, opioid overdose deaths quadrupled and now drug overdoses kill more people than car crashes. In fact, I read this yesterday that drug overdoses are now the leading cause of death For people under 50 in the united states that's i really had to chew on that that's amazing wow frightening when you think about it number two the number of prescriptions written for opioids also quadrupled between 1999 and 2010 and i know jason you and i both know people who have been prescribed these things for legitimate issues with pain but very quickly it can grow into an addiction Number three, prescription opioid addiction often leads to heroin use. So the opioids are a a gateway, a step towards that. Number four, fentanyl, 100 times more potent than morphine, is killing Americans at an increasing rate. And many times uh, the heroin is laced with this. And then number five, this is absolutely frightening. If you haven't heard the term or the name carfentanyl, this is 100 times more powerful than fentanyl. And it's been wreaking havoc in uh, states all across the country more and more. It's actually an elephant tranquilizer. And in the smallest, maybe you've heard and seen these news reports, in the smallest measure, you know, like a pinhead, a grain, like Mm -hmm. a grain of salt, if your body comes in contact with that just through touch, it can be deadly. So this has created tremendous issues and difficulties for law enforcement for first responders, you know, who are responding to overdose, yeah. uh, overdoses, and they're, they're having to, you know, cover themselves in all size, kinds of protective gear just to protect themselves from this. So those are just five quick facts about how this has changed that will frame our conversation today. So we're going to take a break. We're going to come back, talk to my friend Alan Jackson, longtime friend. Many of you know him from our world of youth ministry, but he's also a dad. And he's going to give us some details on his own story, what he and his wife Judy have walked through in their family. And then from the perspective, not just of a parent, but from a youth worker's perspective, give us some ideas as youth workers on how we can best respond to this. So stick with us, and we'll be right back. My good friend Duffy Robbins and I would like to invite you to join us this January on the campus of the Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary on the beautiful North Shore of Boston. During the week of January 9th through 12th, Duffy and I will be teaching a master's level class on theology and principles of dynamic youth ministry. The modular is set up so that if you're a student at another institution, you can join us and have the credit transfer. On Saturday, January 13th, we will be joined by several of our youth ministry friends for a full-day equipping conference for youth workers and parents on the topic of nurturing the soul of today's youth. And from January 15 to 18, we'll be leading a youth ministry symposium on facilitating traditional biblical sexuality in a changing youth culture. To learn more, visit gcts.edu or simply click on the event links we've posted on the Youth Culture Matters podcast page Beneath the player for this episode. Well, one of my longtime friends in youth ministry is Alan Jackson. Alan and I have known each other for years. We cross paths every year, several times at conferences and conventions, and I've had the opportunity to be a part of what Alan was doing for many years in New Orleans at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary as he was teaching youth ministry down there and running. Yemi, right? Um, yeah. What's yimmy? Can you Explain to us what that is. I mean, it's still going, well, we, right? Yeah.
3: Actually, it was it was more out of the acrostic. Why am I? Oh, why am I? Oh, that's <laughs> right. Uh, so, why am I? Youth Ministry Institute uh, Research uh, Arm. We uh, raised money for youth ministry uh, research, but also for student scholarships and mission projects and that kind of thing. So. Be, uh, becoming an institute within the seminary gave us a little bit more power to uh, to raise money, and so that's kind of where we went with that. Did yeah. research project on media literacy, did one on anger management. Um, so we were uh, trying to do some uh, stuff, more boots on the ground, local kind of stuff with uh, real youth ministers.
1: Yeah, and I apologize for messing that up there. We have another friend who had an organization at another seminary called Yimmy. The Youth and Ministry Institute. So there's – look, I'm sorry. There's nothing like when someone messes up the acronym. And we've had that (laughs) happen here all the time because we're known by CPYU. And it's especially fun when the person up front who's introducing, you know, you to do something from CPYU is a board member and they get the acronym wrong. So we've had that happen. It's yeah. Well, you remember the
3: when uh, the youth ministry educators was the Association of Youth Ministry yeah. Educators, AYME, AYME, and then they dropped the A, so it was just YME. Yeah, and uh, YME was pretty appropriate.
1: <laughs> a lot of people ask that in youth in youth ministry, right? Exactly. Yeah. After about a week exactly. of doing youth ministry, getting your first paycheck, why me? Well, I'm Alan. I'm really excited to have you here because. We're really not going to talk at the outset about youth ministry, but we're going to get really personal. And you've been gracious uh, with a blessing of your family to be able to open up and talk about an experience you guys had that you walked through over the last several years. I've known your family for years, so there's that connection here for me where I think it's quite compelling. But I'd love for you, as we talk about the drug crisis here in the United States, to share with us, and Jason and I are going to pick your brain about this, share with us a bit of the story of what what happened.
3: Sure. Um, My wife and I have been married uh, 35 years, coming up this um, May, next May. And um, we were blessed with two children. Uh, My son Aaron was born in 1988, And my daughter was born in 1991. And so you can do the math on the ages. But uh, when Aaron was in high school, um, he was at a Christian school. He was an athlete. He was very focused. And, um, you know, with athletes, they drug test them constantly. So there was a sense that he uh, was behaving himself. We knew that Occasionally, he, um, he drank some with his friends, but it was nothing that we, uh, we felt like was out of control. Um, in 2005, uh, he was a junior in high school, and uh, my daughter was a freshman in high school. And we had a little a weather event that came through New Orleans that uh, kind of disrupted some things. And uh, so, when Hurricane Katrina put uh, five feet of water in our house, we had to evacuate to Baton Rouge, and uh, we lived in Baton Rouge for the for the next year. Uh, it took them a year to rebuild our house, and uh, after that year, we moved back to New Orleans. Um, the untold story of the evacuation, I think, Walt, uh, we did some blogging um, even back then with just some of the Uh, unintended consequences the the didn't see that coming. moments with Katrina and and one of them was that the places where people evacuated became very provincial and their uh, willingness to allow participation on teams or in choirs or in uh, student government those kind of things the the refugees were sort of in a different category and so uh, even though uh, Aaron was um, all district in new orleans he wasn't given a spot on the team in baton rouge and so he had way too much free time on his hands and uh, he discovered oxy in um, baton rouge Um, they called that hillbilly heroin down here and um, so he discovered oxy in baton rouge we did not know about it he was working rather than uh, playing for a team and so we had a Uh, A different rhythm as a family obviously we're you know every day is just survival but um, he got into some things with some new friends and you know later we discovered that probably he had dabbled with some drugs even in high school because the uh, what we know about an addict is you can move away from wherever you are but they're going to find addicts they're going to find other people who have uh, like minds and so after um, the first semester, fall semester 2005, Aaron and I were able to move back to New Orleans. Uh, we slept a lot of different places: my car, my office, friends' houses. Finally, in uh, April, we got an apartment. But we moved back so that he could play spring baseball. And uh, so, uh, once again, he was under the discipline and drug testing of uh, of a high school sports program. And so. It sort of went underground, probably, for the next three years. And um, he went to college on a baseball um, offer, tore up his shoulder, couldn't play baseball. Uh, basically, he said, if I can't play baseball, I want to go to a real college. Uh, he was playing at a small Division III school and transferred to uh, Louisiana State University in Baton Rouge and to LSU, is uh, not known to be a place of uh, discernment and reason. And uh, so during that time, he fell back in love with Oxy and then graduated eventually to heroin. Um, The college industry is such that it takes a very long time for people to flunk out of college because they really want the students there as long as you're paying money. And so it took us about two and a half years to understand that he wasn't going to class, despite the fact that he said he was. And uh, so when all of that sort of came crashing down, he moved back into New Orleans. And that's when we really began to see the signals that uh, that there was an addiction going on. And ultimately, he uh, got a job as a night person in a hotel on our seminary campus. And um, one Wednesday night, the campus police called me and said that he was unconscious with a needle hanging out of his arm. And so that led to um, a full on disclosure of all that perhaps we had been denying. And um, he went into a a program called Teen Challenge that I have a, a great deal of respect for, at least the way they run it in Louisiana. Uh, pretty much because they don't allow parents to be involved in the program. It's uh, um, their philosophy is to make an addict own their addiction. And so um, we uh, they do not require that parents pay monthly stipend. They don't require that parents empty their bank account or expose their insurance policies. Their philosophy is if the team doesn't work, they don't eat. And so they put them all to work and they hire out with landscape and janitorial and whatever they can do to put food on their collective table. Everybody has a job. And um, that was the uh, the right thing for Aaron. Uh, it's a spiritual assemblies of God uh, program where the Bible study part of it is uh, Intense, uh, lots of classes, lots of uh, memory, lots of accountability and lots of work. And um, after 12 months, um, he left the active part of the program and had a choice to either come back to New Orleans and intern uh, with his pastor or to stay in the Teen Challenge program and be a worker, so to speak. And he chose that. And um while he was working induction at the new Teen Challenge facility in Shreveport, he met some people that led him to believe he wanted to go back to the school. So he finished up at Louisiana State in Shreveport, and now is working in a construction industry job in Dallas, Fort Worth area. And
1: he's doing well.
3: He's doing very well. Um, he, uh, When you ask him about those days, he, he doesn't really like to talk about it. Uh, he wants to move on. He, um I probably left out the part that he was uh, over-the-top ADHD and that at the height of the lunacy in Baton Rouge, he was selling his Adderall in order to support his need for other drugs. Mm-hmm. So he was selling his focus drugs that would have helped him in class in order to support his habit in other areas. But now where he could... Take Adderall if he uh, wanted to. He he doesn't want any part of anything that's. He probably still drinks a little bit, but he doesn't want any part of anything that feels like it's chemical. Mm.
1: Okay, so we're sitting here. You know, Jason's on here with us. Chris is here. Kenton's here in the studio. I'm here. We're all looking at each other uh, over our computers here, and I'm thinking uh, you and I have adult children. Chris, right. Chris and Jason. Chris and Jason have young children. Kenton has no children, and sometimes I wonder when he hears guys like us talk if he ever will want to have children. You know, <laughs> when you think about the kinds of things that we're talking about here, and I'm not making light of it, but you know, we have because I walk through this with you at, at some level, right. And you know, we oh, talk absolutely. a lot, and you just talk about the. Yeah, you know, I'm thinking about these guys with younger children and their hopes and dreams for their kids. Just verbalize a little bit about that, the transition from being a parent of a younger child with your hopes and dreams and then the reality of hitting the teenage years. Because Lisa and I have walked through that. You know, we know what that's all well, about. And it's,
3: sure, and it's tough, yeah. Walt, the surreal part is that we stand in front of groups all the time and tell them what's yeah. coming.
1: Yeah, yeah.
3: And and then when it comes to us, we go, what in the heck just happened?
1: Mm-hmm.
3: And so it's like, clinically, all everybody that's, that's in the podcast and probably most of the people that are listening to it have, they're ahead of the curve in terms of the youth culture. Otherwise they wouldn't be, uh, friends of CPYU at all. They're, they're, they're already intrigued with the things that are going on in the culture, but the surreal part is you just don't think it's going to come to your house. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so when you, when you think of being a parent of a young child, um, I probably could have played more defense um, but we, and, and what by that, I mean, I, I probably could have been more directed about what I would or wouldn't let my children do, but they were both free spirits. Um, my daughter is in musical theater. She is, uh, actually she's in Philadelphia right now, Walt. Um, she's, uh, rehearsing for a, a show that they're going to take, um, you know, nationally or whatever. And so her thing was very creative. She had a very creative side. My kids have, have never had that that steady job where you go in and work for Mr. Anderson at the hardware store or you, you go to whatever your job is. They've always worked sporadically because they have pursued their creativity, and we wanted them to do that. We just uh, probably could have done a little better job of playing defense with their friends. And... Um, and maybe we'll get into this later on, but if, if there was one thing I would do over again while they were small is that I would be absolutely rigid on the completion of chores. Um, I would be absolutely non-negotiable on completing tasks that were helpful to the household, so to yeah. speak. Um, there, for For athletes, a lot comes easy.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, just as an aside here, I'm thinking about this. You know, here you are. You're looking in the rearview mirror. You're thinking about what you would do differently. And now I think about the young parents and the fact that they have to juggle so much more in terms of what's happening with kids just because of the addition of technology in the mix, which in many ways, if I can say it this way, was a drug that wasn't in the mix for us when we were raising our young children. So now I would add mobility. That. Yeah, mobility too. Yeah, I mean, you know,
3: we uh, whenever I go back to Dallas, Fort Worth, or, or when you know I'm looking at Jason, who's what is it Uh, almost eight o'clock where you are? Almost Right, twenty three hours behind us. So the the idea that uh, and I was talking to the um, Jason, you were uh, weren't here, but was talking to a guy that I'm beginning to mentor, and he plays for a. A professional sports team and he talked about the the teams in their league or in spokane and in toronto and in vancouver and and who would have thought that a sports team could just get on a plane and go for one game um three thousand miles away and so the mobility the part that uh, that we're never at home um walt there's a joke in my part of town which is relatively affluent how do you call your kids to dinner get in the car Mm. (laughs) and the, you know, we don't, we don't eat at home. We don't have the the family dinner table. We don't, we don't live down the street from grandma. We don't have the, uh, the other family members who perhaps would see some things that we, as parents are so involved in just surviving that we might not see coming.
1: Go ahead, Jason.
3: Well, before before, because I, I know that we're going to have to take a
2: break here in a moment. But before we do, I I there, I'll be, I don't want to leave this hanging because I have this question and I'm, I'm I'm assuming that others will have this question, too. But you had mentioned uh, one of the things you would have done if you, when your kids were younger was have your children complete tasks. So complete their chores. Can you go further? Why is that so important or why? Why? When you look back, that's the one thing you would say. I really want for my kids to complete the chores that we assign.
3: Well, the um, the what I see is the the incubation of addiction, at least partially, is the idea that we get something for nothing. We get something quickly. Uh, We have instant gratification. And so when uh, we have chores that are assigned, it's a delayed gratification. It's something that says, "Okay, you you don't get your high right now. You you have to uh, earn your money to go to the movies. You have to uh, uh, finish your uh, cleaning your room or your place in the kitchen or mowing the yard or whatever task that we assigned them. And for my son, he was an athlete. He he was gone from seven o'clock in the morning till seven o'clock at night, and he was a three-sport athlete. So he played. He had some practice year-round, but there were still slots when he could have. Rather than just vegging out on uh, an Xbox or, or saying, this is my downtime, I deserve it. No, you choose to play all these sports. And Jason, in hindsight, I might have said to him, if you think that it's too big a hill to climb for you to earn your own gas money, maybe you need to set out a sports season. Maybe you need to not play all three sports, but you need to choose which two are the best of the best. But quite frankly, as a father, uh, I'm so proud of him for excelling in sports and pretty much whatever he does that I get caught up in it too. And so, if if I had it to do over again, I would put my own ego in check and say the the delayed gratification that comes with completing a task, completing a chore. Uh, you don't earn computer time until you finish your homework or of course, I know homework and computer time are synonymous now, but <laughs> the um the idea that there are things that you do that are just part of being in the family, and then there are things you do that say you earn before you spend. you uh, you have some kind of self-discipline that leads up to some kind of a freedom to keep the link between freedom and responsibility
2: and i and I also hear in this. Correct me if I'm wrong, but what I'm hearing is uh, a lot of times we can look to our kids and think well They're doing three sports. They're really busy. And and so there's this aspect of movement But really what is the downside of that? Potentially is that we're not teaching our kids how to wait They're always busy. They always have something to look forward to they always have some sort of gratification before them that's and 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 uh, We forget that aspect and so the The downside of that is they've never really learned how to just have a space where they're waiting and they're not having to fill that
3: space with something else. Is, and they've that... never they've never really had to choose between things uh, because yeah. we parents these days we say we're going to facilitate all of it. We will we will idle in the car outside the karate lesson so that you can run out and in the back seat of the minivan take off your karate outfit, put on your soccer shirt, and we'll deliver you to the soccer field. And uh, then somebody will have something in the oven so that we can feed you in the car between soccer and choir practice. And it's like we're parenting by Uber and not really saying, no, why don't you choose which of these you want to do?
1: And the the sneaky trap to this is, that it's all very well-intentioned on the part of parents. Most definitely. Yeah, when you ask parents about their intentions, it's well-intentioned, but it's horribly misdirected. And it's interesting when you just said, you know, the car's out there idling, I-D-L-E, idle. I'm thinking about the idol of our kids, I-D-O-L, that we're all susceptible to because we're all broken people, raising broken kids. And it is, as Tim Keller says, I love his definition of idolatry, taking good things and making them ultimate things. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So, and and this is all part of helicopter parenting as I hear you talk about this. And we all as parents when we get to this age if we are honest with ourselves, we look back and we are thinking a lot about the mistakes that we made. The things that well, we I, did not do right and
3: Yeah, and and no, but the, the helicopter parenting is part of it, but the the even if you let your kids go do their own thing and you're not a a dance mom and you're not uh you know the the ultimate that people say about their fathers at funerals is he was at every ball game well being at every ball game is different from being at every practice and making sure there's a coach to help him with his curveball another coach to help him with his slap shot another coach to help him become a black belt uh it's like there's 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 also an outsourcing of parenting that we do rather than just humbly saying, you know, I think maybe we don't need to do all of this. Why don't we together as a family choose which is going to be the best for you both now because you enjoy it. And then as parents, we bring in the dynamic of and and this may add something to you later on. Uh, The parents who say, if you start a sport, you're going to finish one season of it. I'm not going to let you quit in the middle of it. Uh, The parents who say, I'm not going to go be your advocate before your teacher because I don't think you are in the right in this thing. Whereas uh, I know even as a professor at the seminary, I'm teaching master's students and I got letters from parents. And I'm going, yeah. nah, let it go. It's it's time to let that go. Yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah. It's your your son's earning a master's yep. degree. Let let him let him be yeah. on his own.
1: Yeah, well, we're going to take a break here. When we come back, we're going to be talking about mm-hmm. some practical guidelines for youth workers and parents. I want to probe that a little more with Alan. And I will let you know that on our podcast page for this episode of the podcast where we're interviewing Alan Jackson, we will put links at the bottom to some handouts that we have here, some free downloads that will be helpful to you as parents. They'll be helpful to youth workers. There are things you can pass on to parents related to the topic of substance abuse. We have a handout on the stages of addiction. We have a um, a handout on the signs and symptoms of teen alcohol and drug abuse. And then a handout, a trend alert, uh, titled My Child is Abusing Drugs and Alcohol. What Do I Do Now? So we'll have those as resources to help you follow up after this. So let's take a break. We'll come back and continue our conversation with our friend, Alan Jackson. I'm very excited to tell you about a new resource we've just launched here at CPYU. Just Add Parents is a series of ready-to-use parent meetings that feature three 10-minute video teaching segments, each followed by a time for guided small group discussion. Youth workers, Just Add Parents is perfect for use in your parent meeting or a parent class. The teaching content is not only designed to inform parents regarding pressing cultural issues, but to equip them to respond to these unfolding realities in a gospel centered, practical manner, all with the goal of helping you help parents lead their children into believing and behaving Christianly in today's rapidly changing culture. Each Just Add Parents Parents meeting includes video teaching segments, PDFs of discussion questions, and other handouts. You can order Just Add Parents as either a download or on a thumb drive. I'm happy to announce that the first installment in the Just Add Parents Parent Meeting series is now available and it's titled Tech Sensible Parenting. If you want to help your parents understand and respond proactively to kids and technology with a Just Add Parents Parent Meeting, you can learn more on our website, at cpyu.org.
2: Thanks for listening to Youth Culture Matters. We're back here with Alan Jackson and Walt, and I are having a great conversation, uh, a needed conversation around uh, addiction, and and really relates to a lot of what we're seeing in the news. And uh, before we go any further, uh, Alan, we we do this thing here on the podcast called. Uh, uh, really take five. It's, it's an opportunity for us to hear from our guests, some different uh, aspects of who they are. And these are our questions that we ask. No one question is the same for uh, each guest. And so, uh, we just uh, use this as an opportunity for our listeners to get to know you a little bit better. So, um, are you open to partaking in take five? Yeah, it has absolutely. No,
1: it has no choice. That's right. Okay.
2: Well, you, all right, well, stop, he does have a choice. Stop being polite. No. You can't just,
0: well, well, just let well, it I, rip, I, I,
2: Jason. Come on. All right, well, uh, yeah, be careful with that. Okay, so here, <laughs> here, here, here's what we got. Here's the first one. Um, all right. Uh, we'll, we'll start with just uh, a simple one. A uh, favorite place that you like to visit to get away? It can be local. It can be international. It could be somewhere else in the States.
3: Colorado. Hmm.
2: That's great. Any particular place in Colorado?
3: Any place with snow that you can ski on. Oh, that's great. S- skiing is the one thing that I do that I can't think about anything else when I do it,
1: or I will not live. Ah, <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's great. How, so, how so is the skiing it... in Colorado compared to New Orleans?
3: <laughs> uh, it's, uh, it's a little better because yeah. New Orleans by definition is below sea level. Yeah,
1: and That's right. I forgot about that.
3: Skiing uphill is a, a, an issue of physics. <laughs> yeah.
1: Uh,
2: that's great. Uh, okay. Well, let me ask this. Uh, in one of our breaks, uh, you were speaking about your complicated, uh, history of baseball. Cause I asked what's your favorite team. And you said, uh, well, It depends. (laughs) So can you explain for our listeners why you have a complicated history with baseball and why it's so difficult to choose a favorite team?
3: Sure. I grew up loving baseball. I was one of those kids that listened to baseball on the radio with my dad. The first baseball game I ever went to was the Colt 45s, the Houston predecessor of the uh, Houston Astros. Uh, Flash forward to adulthood, I became a chaplain for a minor league baseball team. The AAA team in New Orleans uh, used to be called the Zephyrs because that was the name they brought over from Denver, and now they have both the worst name and the worst looking mascot uh, in baseball, the New Orleans Baby Cakes. (laughs) <laughs> I I am not making that up. And their mascot is a frightening bride of Chucky looking thing. So our uh, minor league teams are affiliated with major league teams on a contract that sometimes uh, um, is renegotiated and sometimes it's not renewed. And so when I first became a chaplain, we were with the Brewers and then the Astros, then the Expos who became the Nationals and then the Mets, and now the Marlins. And then to further complicate, I sort of keep up with some of the guys. And uh, so as they disperse to other teams, like the Cubs, the Blue Jays, the Dodgers, the White Sox, uh, now Tampa Bay, St. Louis, I kind of keep up with those teams as well, just looking at the box scores to see people I know.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So is it is it does it ever happen? I'm sure it does, but you have two teams uh with two two players that you really like and so you <laughs> in between the Indians, have to, to
3: oh yeah change your, um, your hat. <laughs> yeah, last year, uh two years ago, uh one of the the two of the guys in the same Bible study with me, one of them was playing for the Cubs and one of them was playing for the White Sox. And <laughs> so uh even the cross town rivalry.
2: Yeah. Okay. All right. That's, that's, that's fun. I know that rival uh, rivalry. Well, <laughs> yeah. Being, um, being in Spokane and all, <laughs> Oh yeah. Being in Spokane and all, <laughs> uh, let me ask this. Uh, what is one word? What's one word if you could choose, uh, a saying from the past, uh, so it could be a word or a saying from the past that you would like to see come back.
3: Uh, an old lady who was a friend that was really crusty, uh, the favorite saying that she had is, you can't teach class and you can't fix stupid. <laughs> I, I would like to see that
1: come back. I don't know why I'm thinking I, I, of Larry the Cable Guy right now. Something it just He just <laughs> popped into my head. I, I don't know whether yeah. that describes him or yeah. something he would say. You
3: can't teach class and you can't fix stupid.
1: Uh, all right. I like that. Uh, okay. Uh, How did you come up with it. that question? I just have to pause right there because that would have been paralyzing to me. I'm, I'm hey. impressed that he came up with an answer for that so quickly. All right.
2: Yeah, it was uh, that's excellent.
3: Uh, well, my, my other choice was the quote that's been wrongly attributed to both Mark Twain and Abe Lincoln. Uh, Better to keep your mouth shut and let people think you're a fool than to open up your mouth and remove all doubt. That would be my other favorite. Now, that's attributed to who? Uh, they. It's attributed to, to Mark Twain and Abe Lincoln. Neither one of them said it. Oh. Um, a guy named Maurice Switzer actually said it, but nobody remembers who he is, and I have no idea who oh, he is. Oh, he
1: used to coach the Oklahoma Sooners.
3: Yeah, probably so. <laughs> um, yeah, but his uh, his advice didn't work with uh, Barry. Oh, yeah. So, uh, <laughs> but uh, it's also in Can't proverbs. Fix stupid. Yeah. yeah. Can't All right. The
2: Here's the fourth one. Uh, something popular
3: now that annoys you. Something popular now <laughs> that annoys me.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Kenton's got his fidget spinner in here. Those uh, things are so yesterday. Come frivolous,
3: on. Frivolous. Frivolous tattoos.
1: Oh. oh
2: so yeah. wait can I imply then that that tattoos with meaning are okay,
3: but I I understand, I understand somebody putting their child's name on their arm. If they are praying for them or if they uh, passed away. But uh, when you're in the grocery store and the, the lady has Bernard tattooed across her chest and you go, who's Bernard? And she said, that's my ex-boyfriend. And I go, that didn't work
1: out. <laughs> I'm just stuck well, on the I, picture of someone in the grocery store with Bernard on her chest, and you're seeing yeah. this. How?
3: Hey, you can't unthink this stuff.
2: Yeah,
1: okay, all right. <laughs>
2: <laughs> okay, here's the last one. Uh, I, and I was trying to think of the best way to ask this, but uh, I think I, I landed oh, on, on, on the right one. So you've known Walt for how many years? I knew a lot, uh, a lot, a lot, a lot. Okay. So you, you've gotten to know some of his unique traits, some of his uh, unique styles you just, you, you've gotten to spend time with him. So, uh, I would, I would be curious if you were to choose, uh, a genre of music and a name that Walt would go by if he were a pop star, if he were, uh, some sort of musician, what, what, uh, category of music would he sing in and what would his uh, name be
3: wow well I I think classic rock is probably a given okay classic rock
2: but it would have been it would have just been rock and roll back then yeah, so.
3: yeah. well with Walt it's always been classic yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> thanks for joining us folks on this episode of
3: <laughs> um, like a stage name
2: yeah what would his stage name be
1: Wow. We could have a contest for this. This would be good. Yeah. So so are we gonna go
3: Walt Clearwater Revival or Walt Jovi or where are we headed with this?
2: Uh well like Bono, like you know, you, it's a stage name. That doesn't that's not his real name, the Edge. Meatloaf uh, is
1: already taken. Well,
2: Meatloaf is already
3: taken. <laughs> Walt is a lot like Prince. He doesn't really need oh. a last name. I mean, when you oh. talk culture, you just say, Hey, you know Walt.
2: Actually, yeah, he'd be the artist formerly known as Walt Mueller. <laughs>
3: yeah, I keep waiting for CPYU to have a symbol. <laughs> <laughs> All right.
2: I got to say thank well, you to
1: Alan on this because <laughs> I know where Jason was hoping this would go, and you didn't take it there, Alan. You are a true friend. Jason- well, no. you a
2: listener— there's still plenty of time for you yeah. to give opinion, give thought. And I know some of our listeners have even sent gifts in the past. So
3: I'm going <laughs> to avoid any reference to Barry Manilow. Yeah.
1: oh boy, <laughs> uh, You just broke that rule. Well, there you go, Walt. Yeah. It's, it's, hey, it's hey, your, yeah, yeah mean, hey, can I throw something? I got to go back to the Houston Colt 45s. Cause when we started to talk about those, these guys just giggled here being younger, you know, but you know, 1962, and two of the classic baseball names that I remember from back then were on that team, Bob Aspermonte. What a great baseball name, Bob Aspermonte and uh Joey Amalfitano.
3: Aren't they glad they didn't put their names on their jerseys back
1: then? Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and they both went on to to uh to to hold some high some, positions with a mob in northern New Jersey. Yeah, yeah great baseball names. Well, listen, we're going to continue our discussion here on uh, a more serious note as we're talking to Alan Jackson about his story in his family with substance abuse addiction. I asked folks yesterday on social media to let us know if they had any questions or comments, You know, gave them a heads up that we were going to be having this conversation with you, Alan, and what the topic was. And somebody wrote this to me. I thought I'd just read this to get everybody thinking he's a volunteer firefighter he says it is devastating what this is doing to our culture as a volunteer firefighter i unsuccessfully work on teenagers and adults who die from an overdose mostly heroin it is tragic each time and makes me numb every time we leave the house of a teen who has passed from an overdose it impacts us all because in the final analysis there was nothing we could do to save them Thanks for tackling the issue on the front end before it's too late. Alan, I really appreciate you and your vulnerability because we've learned that people who are willing to tell their stories can help those of us who maybe are still raising kids or on the front end of this in youth ministry help us write our stories, I trust, by God's grace, in in good and positive ways. So, Jason, you, you had a thought and a question during the break that I thought it would be good to share and talk about yeah.
2: well, something that struck me as you were sharing your story, Alan, was uh, you had uh, both of your kids went into a Christian school. and one of the things that I find often is uh, this isn't always true, but this does happen. Parents place their kids in a Christian school in order to protect them from everything else. And then what ends up happening is I find that many of those parents uh, turn a blind eye. One of the things you had said is, is that there were signs. Uh, and I, I, there have been multiple conversations I've had with parents and say, well, that's, that might happen in the public school, but that's not happening here, and that's not my sure. son or daughter. Sure. So what might you say to a parent uh, that finds himself in that situation? H- how would you handle that conversation with a parent that says, no, the whole reason I have my kids in this school is to protect them? Because I, 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 I encounter this often, and so I, I would love to hear your thoughts on how you might respond to that parent now.
3: Um, I would ask them about their Christian school. I would ask them if discipleship is going on there. Um, a lot of times a Christian school is perceived to be the place, and you know, we, we kind of laugh because it's not only we want them in that environment, in some public school systems, we kind of want them to learn how to read. And where some public school systems are perceived as so... Uh, uh, negative. It's a great social experiment for Christian parents to have their kids in the public school system in order to try to be salt and light. But at the end of the day, they would like them to be able to do rudimentary math, and that's that's not happening always in the public schools. So part of the motivation is, is to say, do I do I really want them to be insulated from the negativity, the the some of the things that are stereotypes. And, and I think sometimes unfair because I don't, I don't think it's any more fair to say in a blanket instance that public schools are infested with drugs and Christian schools, private schools are drug free. Uh, I would, I would go another layer. There are some public schools where, uh, by providence or coincidence, there's just really good leadership and there is mentoring and discipleship, uh, uh, that's going on even in some cases Christian discipleship and um, so i I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't put that blanket on but to your point, we did assume that with chapel and with Christian influence and with the fact that his coach uh, was not one of those uh, profane guy well, I mean all coaches probably have a little bit of it but Uh, by and large, there was a sense that we want you guys to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. They weren't. um, and, And so, yeah, we were probably lulled to sleep just a little bit. But in the time that has come since, I would probably say to parents, just ask a very simple question. Is your child being discipled at school? Is there someone who has come alongside of them and is pouring life on life the same kind of things as you are? Uh, that's more of a preventative than just to say they're in the Christian school. And you're right. We we had we made some assumptions that drugs didn't get in Christian schools, uh, but they were. Of course, they are. Mm. Uh, it's uh, some more than others, but uh, of course, they are.
2: Yeah, you you had mentioned uh, earlier because I know that we're gonna uh, make a turn here and speak a little bit about prevention. And and one of the questions I would have with regards to that is you had said you there might have been signs mm-hmm. um and what were some of those signs what what might be signs that parents uh that maybe they weren't present in your family but they might be present in other families that parents can be on the lookout for
3: uh secrecy if uh if there is an overt uh sense of secrecy um you know kids since the beginning of time have tried to sneak out at night but but beyond just uh, that that there is a, a hypersensitivity that there's a a panic if a parent uh, uh, picks up a student's phone uh, that there's just an absolute uh, mortified look to think that or or several layers of passwords or a sense of entitlement this is my room this is my space this is my phone this is my TV this is my media. Uh, I think that an over, Um, sense of um, secrecy Um, I think sleep patterns when my son uh, finally got into a program I didn't know to put my finger on it but it seems like the things they gave him the best one of the things that was most beneficial was that the days became days and the nights became nights and for an addict they love the night and when Your child is staying up till two and three in the morning and they're extremely hard to get out of bed. And if they're on heroin, they're impossible to get out of bed because the heroin high has a, a come down period of probably 18 hours where they physically cannot be waked up. And so that causes them to lose their jobs when they can't get up and go in for their shift or whatever. But that's, that was looking back we just assumed that he was exhausted because he was at the end of uh, this following this following this following this but a heroin high has a a long come down if they if they are uh, sleeping to the point that you physically cannot get them out of bed you might do a little more investigation Um, that uh, they are uh, very close to the vest about their friendships Uh, Well, who did you spend time with? Well, just a guy. Just a guy. Well, where were you? Well, you know, out. And if there's this uh, vague description uh, that's ongoing, I expect it now and then. But if that's the rule rather than the exception, it would be a signal. Um, Another signal would be when we catch ourselves as parents make an excuse Oh, well, his maybe his biorhythm is just not to get up very early. Uh, Maybe he's just trying to be his own man with his friendships. Uh, Maybe he's just trying to get out from under uh, a shadow of a parent that may be known in the community. Maybe he's just maybe he's just and we hear ourselves with uh, the rationalization that is, in fact, uh, enabling.
1: Yeah, we don't Mm want to believe it. We we don't want to go down those roads as parents. Let me ask you about this, Alan. As you and Judy walked through this, as people in ministry, as a leader in student ministry, what about what you thought about how people were looking at you? Did people look at you differently? How do you handle the issue of shame? Because I think we we default to that. Sure.
3: Well, on the one hand, nobody wants to say, hey— This is my kid. He's on drugs. Um, I don't think my son would mind me telling this story. Um, He had a community service aspect of one of his uh, incidents. And uh, we were on our way to church uh, one Sunday morning and passed a a trash cleanup crew on the interstate in their coveralls. And sure enough, there was my son. Oh, look, that's my boy. I'm so proud. And uh, probably that's not. Where we want to go, mm. but uh, a minister has a heightened sense of shame because then people start bringing out the the scripture passage that says, "If you can't manage your own household, how can you manage the affairs of the church?" Mm. And so you you, for me, the greatest tool was dis- disclosure. Hey, this is this is what my family's struggling with, and if. If my position is compromised for it, so be it. And I was fortunate. um, And it was a little odd. Walt, you knew that we lived on the seminary campus. And the seminary campus is an institution that's a drug-free area. And so I didn't really have a choice. At the end, when Aaron went into rehab, they said, he's violated the drug-free, the no tolerance. He has to leave. If he's going to live with you, you have to leave. And so as a professor living on the campus, it wasn't something that I really could keep secret because my son was no longer allowed on the campus. He was no longer allowed to be on the campus because he has violated a drug. Now, fortunately, he his uh, program was over a year. Uh, by the way, Jason, that's another tidbit. A 28-day program is a timeout. Hmm. An addict can endure anything for 28 days. Um, a, a, a real treatment program, at least in my experience as both a parent and a pastor, is 12 months, it's not 18, it's not three months, it's not outward bound for uh 45 days in the wilderness, it's a year. Um, because 28 days is just a timeout, but um to your point, Walt, the shame of it was just something we had to do. And, and and the Lord really blessed us because it seems like every time we told our story, there were more parents that were strengthened by the fact that we did. And I just said to my church, if you, if you need me not to lead in the church, because you're going to dwell on this passage in Timothy, then um, I think there are some hermeneutics problems with that. But if that's the way you feel, then I'll just have to step aside. I don't, I don't interpret it that way. I think we as parents have a responsibility to do the best we can. I think we can learn from podcasts and things like this, that we we don't need to enable sin in our kids' lives. But our kids have this amazing thing called free will. And they, uh, from the time they're two, uh, they take great delight in expressing that will. And if you're going to throw me out of the church for having a son who made some poor choices, I want to deal with the people who kids scream at McDonald's, you know, control your kid. Uh, our, our kids have free will. Uh, babies are babies. Babies scream. Teenagers rebel. Boy, that was timing.
1: Yeah, that was. That was good. Uh,
3: so there's a sense of um, the shame that goes only if we let Um, poor hermeneutics deal with the Scripture or uh, poor character guide others. It just seems like every time I talked about it, I helped
1: somebody. Hmm. Uh, You know, as you get older as a parent, you and I think as you mature in your own faith, you begin to realize that the greatest struggle facing our kids is the greatest struggle we face each and every day, each and every minute, second of every day, and that is our own brokenness and sin. Absolutely. And that, I think, is what you're talking about, that, you know, to go back to what Jason asked about the Christian school, somehow we think we're removing our kids from the influences. They're still walking in and out of that school and walking around that school with the toughest thing they have to deal with, and that's their their own broken selves.
3: What What about homeschoolers that yeah. choose drugs? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I mean, and that's you, happening you, quite yeah. a bit. You can't cocoon much more than that. Right. Yeah. Um, Yeah.
1: Yeah. And so, Uh, you know, I had a conversation last night with a couple. They told their story at this banquet I spoke at for this uh, drug and alcohol counseling center. And somehow the conversation turned to our brokenness. And I shared with them (laughs) that, you know, think about the first parent, the perfect parent who had these perfect kids who were flourishing, you know, our first parents. And they, as you said, exercised their wills and chose to go against Abs- their absolutely. father. And so as, our, our yeah. kids will do the same
3: thing. And the first parents were children who chose to exercise their own free will yeah. of God the Father.
2: Yeah. yeah. I'm I'm reminded of, uh, we, we had a, a guest uh, several podcasts ago, but Leslie Leland Fields, who had, had said something that I thought uh, was, was really powerful. And she had, she had talked about the difference between successful parenting, which is I think something we're talking about versus faithful parenting. And, and faithfully stepping into it versus successfully stepping into it. And, and I think recognizing the difference between the two is, is something that for, pers- for me personally has been really helpful. And I right. think that it's helpful in this conversation.
3: But I would say that in terms of that faithfulness that parents every now and then do need a reset. sometimes yeah, we we good. get so caught up in the spiral of the manic activity we talked about earlier and even the ignoring some of the signs along the road that it is helpful to have a, a reset where we go, okay, let me redefine what faithful parenting is. Let me go back to the scriptures and and scrape away all we uh we just saw an article about chilies um reducing 40 items from their menu Hmm. because they just kept adding things that other casual dining places had added and before long they were drifting away from their mission of making hamburgers and fajitas Hmm. and so they're They've cut 40 items from their menu. I wonder if sometimes parents, churches we need to cut some items from the menu in order to refocus on what it is to be a faithful parent. It's mm-hmm. good. Advice. I still hope
2: they have the baby back ribs. yeah <laughs> hey, hey we're call a-
1: We're, we're uh, winding down here and I, I want to get to one more thing before we call it quits here because I think this is really important. and that is Alan from your experience as a parent? and your experience as a trainer of youth workers, what are some takeaways? Can you give us two or three little bits of advice that would be helpful to youth workers about how to walk alongside parents as they go through this? Because there's not a youth worker who is, I mean, every youth worker is going to be affected by this, whether they know it or not. And the stance we take now, posturing ourselves to be ready for this, will help us see it and respond to it in God-glorifying ways, in ways that are really yeah. helpful and productive? Um,
3: one, um, youth ministers are spiritual advisors, not drug addiction counselors. Um, Excellent. We, our, our, our threshold of competency is reached pretty quickly. Uh, with that said, when you are not dealing with parents who are calling you at two in the morning because their son has been found with a needle in their arm, take the time to uh, investigate all of the possibilities. And I've learned different questions to ask. Um, Investigate what would happen if you called the police. What would be the the chain of events? Uh, Do you have um, intake uh, addiction facilities that will uh, sort of do the psych uh, eval protocol where they can they'll bring them in for uh, 36 to 72 hours. pretty much no questions asked um, because you're the, the immediate is to get them in a place where physically they can be detoxed if they have to be detoxed or be ameliated uh, ameliorated for um, the, if the drugs are doing something physical, they need to be medically saved. But beyond that, parents want to know what facilities are available, what programs are available. Is this a $60,000 a year program? Is this a, Are there grants? Are there? Do all the homework about that before that parent is sitting in your office.
1: So you want to um, be a responsible referrer who you see yourself... Right as the one who's going to connect the dots between the great immediate crisis need and sure. something that will answer that need in the best possible and
3: way and it, and it and it changes often it's you you can't just one and done this there uh, as a, a pastor or a youth pastor you need to every 6 months or so be sure you're updated and you you're probably going to have to be because there's some family that's in your office asking you and the research you did on this Outward Bound program or this Teen Challenge program, this uh, addiction facility is no longer in business. The insurance changed on this one. Your insurance changed. You you have to have some referral FAQs at your fingertips because these parents are in crisis.
1: Yeah.
3: And... Uh, why did we just uh, helped another family send a son to Teen Challenge in Louisiana, and the magic to their ears was that it wasn't going to drain their bank accounts to have him over there?
1: Hmm.
3: Because some of the programs they looked at were sixty-sixty thousand 60, a year, a hundred and twenty thousand a year, uh, and and who has six figures to to put into this? You you want to throw up your hands and say, let the government have him. So uh, that, that's, I, I would say, have your, uh, your referral FAQs ready. I would say do a lot of listening and don't jump into what parents are doing or not doing. Um, I would put parents in touch with each other. There are support groups uh, that now the buzzword seems to be the, the parenting prodigals support group. And it's an all-encompassing prodigal that's not specific to opioids or alcohol or truancy or just my kid is just not following the lines. And I see as a parent that they are not going to be able to be successful as a young adult. Do you remember the uh, the old book that uh, the Search Institute put out, What Kids Need to Succeed with the Developmental Assets and right, all that?
1: 40 Assets, I think. It was yeah. 40, yeah.
3: Uh... That, that idea of helping parents know that to build in decision-making uh, is going to pay dividends down the road, to build in a family meal time, it, to build in a family vacation, to build in some things that the kids roll their eyes, but most parents will discover if you say to them, Hey, me and your mom are gonna go hiking in uh, on the Appalachian Trail for a week in July. Do either of you want to come? And your kids go, no, no, no. I want to play ball. I want to do this. Okay, well, we'll go without you then. What? You're not gonna change all your plans to be around us? No, we're really not. And that that sense of gestalt is a, is an important thing as well. So, mm. um. I think know your, know your drugs, you know, you know, know how to get to pill finder. If you find pills in your kid's room, uh, be able to identify them. Are they begging somebody else's uh, Adderall? Are they, is it something more serious? If you find a pill crusher in your kid's drawer, that's probably a warning sign, Yeah, Uh, which brings up another part of it. I don't think kids should have privacy. Um, I I think that this idea of letting them have a sacred space in your house is way overblown and and with some boundaries. Yeah, modesty, of course. But the idea that I'm going to put a lock on my bedroom door and you're not going to have the key to that lock. I'm going to have super encrypted passwords on my phone, on my text, on my Instagram, on all my online accounts. That's absurd. Yeah. If yeah. we thought that somebody was pumping raw sewage into our kids' bedroom, we would break down the door in order to stop up the pipe. But we don't have that sense of urgency about these subtle forms of raw sewage that are coming into our yeah. kids' bedrooms.
1: I really appreciate this, Alan, because you're speaking out of experience here. This is not just theory. This is reality for you. So we really appreciate you sharing your story. The last question that we always ask, and I know there's so much more we could talk about here, but time's up. Any written resources, any books, any videos, any websites, we put these on the podcast page. Those of you who are listening, like on iTunes, you'll want to go to cpyu.org, to the Youth Culture Matters page, and that's where you'll find links to all these things, including the handouts that I mentioned before. But anything you'd mention, Alan, or Jason, something you might be aware of that would be helpful? Well, it
3: sounds patronizing
1: to say that I
3: drive everybody to the CPYU website because it's an it's a air traffic control when you guys find out new stuff. Uh, uh, but beyond that, I would say the, the, the support groups that are labeled now parenting prodigals, there's one in everybody's town, and uh, you might be surprised
1: at who shows up. Mm. Yeah, good, good. Jason, anything that you can think I of would, or for the good of the organization? I order? would just,
2: yeah, I think uh, just reinforcing the the impact and 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 the need to just be aware as a youth worker and even as a parent of teen challenge. I, I think uh, teen challenge is is represented well throughout the country, and uh, I have personally seen friends uh, impacted by this uh, as well that have, uh, left, uh, a life of addiction and, and had, uh, opportunity to do things that they probably would have never been able to do had they not gone through the program.
3: So and I, have, Jason, I have, Jason, a qualifier there, teen challenge is hardly any teens anymore. Yeah. That's the, uh, the, the complicated landscape of a minor being in a rehab program uh, has only left probably ten or fifteen actual teen facilities in the teen challenge network. Most of their impact is young adults, and that's most crazy. of the and most of the addiction traffic I get is young adults. I, I hear uh, I, I don't hear a whole lot of my sixteen-year-old, my fifteen-year-old, my seventeen-year-old, because admittedly, when you walk alongside of parents, that's a whole different layer because regulations and so forth have given so much restriction to what they're able to do, yeah. but 17 and up, they can treat them like an adult. So most teen challenge programs now are 17 and up.
2: I'm I'm actually really glad you said that because uh, each of my friends that has gone through it, they went through it in their early twenties. Right. So yep. Yeah, that's great. So yeah.
1: Well, this has been good and I really appreciate you guys being on Alan. Thank you. I know the thread that has run through this thing from start to finish that we all understand and we can never forget is that God is a God of great grace, great mercy, and God is a God who redeems. And we're we're thankful that in the midst of the brokenness and pain in your in your life, Alan, and your family, Alan, that that's been evidence too—the evidence of God's grace. So thanks for sharing the story and for all of well, you.
3: Let me let me say one more thing, sure. Walt.
1: Sure. Um, It is,
3: for a man especially, it has been a great help for me, Walt, that you and I have walked alongside each other with our kids. Um, It is a great help to have a friend who's not going to judge, who is not going to offer platitudes, but simply is going to offer support. And so thank you for that in this journey.
1: Yeah, thank you. We have a good friendship. I don't know if people can pick up on Uh, that, but... You know, when a Presbyterian gets gets into a good friendship with a Southern Baptist, it can be just awesome. That's so we've must had a good be time yeah. Must be yeah, predestination. Yeah, yeah, it is. I think it is. I'm glad you admitted that. You're coming around, Alan. You're coming around. Well, thanks folks for joining us. Jason, thank you. And we hope that you'll be back next time for our next episode of Youth Culture Matters.
0: Thanks for joining us for Youth Culture Matters, a podcast from the Center for Parent Youth Understanding. If you'd like to learn more about today's youth culture, visit our website at cpyu.org. And if you have any questions, comments, or feedback, email us at podcast at cpyu.org.